We are in week four of a series we're doing called The Shelter of Your Wing, and this is going to have kind of a happy Thanksgiving feel to it. It feels a little weird continuing a series on anxiety and depression, although some of you, your family encounters this past weekend were fit right into our series on anxiety and depression, but we've been talking about that for four weeks. Um, the lovely Christy is going to wrap it up next week, and then we'll enter the Christmas season after that for the few Sundays leading up to Christmas. Um, but this is week four on the anxiety, depression, mental illness. And actually, I recognize I said it kind of jokingly a, a second ago, but Thanksgiving and ho the holiday season for a lot of people is very difficult. For me, it's a time of joy because I don't have a, a lot of loss or a lot of heartache in my life that kind of gets escalated. I, there's, no, there's not a lot of loved ones that I'm looking and saying, oh, this is a reminder they're not here with us. But for some of you, it's a very difficult time, Thanksgiving leading through the Christmas season. So... Um, my wife and I, my wife Christy, if you're new, she was leading worship today. We pastor the church uh, here together. She and I were reflecting this past week, just looking at the past year. We were out to dinner with some friends a few nights ago talking about the past year and setting some goals for the new year. And, um, and there was one comment that Christy and I have made a little bit to each other over the past few weeks that this past season of life, it's just seemed like there's been more things that have just been hard, just difficult, nothing tragic. Nothing huge, um, but just, you know, and maybe you can relate. As you go long enough through life, you just experience enough times where this is like, man, this is, this is hard work. There's, I saw a mug advertised on, online or something. It, was, it said, adulting is hard, or it said, adulting comes after coffee. You know, you see those things. Adulting, being an adult in this world is difficult at times, and we were commenting on that this week. Um, we've noticed an increased weariness of just the day-to-day -day going through some of the hard things in life. And I know that can probably apply to many of us here today. We go through seasons where you just feel that life has been difficult. Maybe that's why we get wrinkles after a few years. Or, you know, you just go through enough times and enough years in life, and you just realize, wow, this gets to be hard work. As the kids get older, you think, oh, this is going to get easy. And you keep thinking there's going to be a season where it just gets easier. But, man, it just seems to be difficult at times, which is why, and this is not going to be another um, rant on social media. I went overboard with that a little bit last week. Um, but which is why young, young people, especially newly married people, if you're older, 40-plus, um, and you see the posts online of a newly married 23-year-old couple, Everything is great, right? Everything is great. The first, you know, first time, first year of marriage, they're, they're Instagramming their date nights, and they're like, we've had three date nights this week, and we've committed to have three date nights every week for the rest of our lives, and it's important. And then they do, and then they get preachy about it, right? It's important to invest in your marriage, right? And we're all, and all the grown-ups, all the ones with the wrinkles who have been adulting for a while, are like, great, thank you, thank you. When they have kids. It's like, I don't think I'm ever going to get tired of changing these diapers. Such a blessing to be a mom or a dad. And, and you're just like, yeah, just talk to me in 20 years or a year. Let's start, let's start with that. But we see that life has a way of kind of chipping away the optimism a little bit. And uh, as we've taken a few weeks to talk about mental illness, depression, and anxiety, we've looked at this idea that it has several different causes there's not just one cause. There's not just one root. But it has several different causes. 
it manifests itself in several different ways. And, and some of the causes are chemical, just brain chemicals are not functioning. Medical, like a medicine solution. There's sometimes it's physical causes. Sometimes we talked about that last week, how we live in a society where we just go, we go, we go, we go. We never, not only do we never slow down and rest, but our hearts and our souls, we are never at rest, fully trusting in God, and that can take a toll. There are spiritual causes. Um, and today we're looking at this idea. Sometimes depression and anxiety is a real result from real circumstances that happen to you. Just real things that happen to you. It could be the ongoing, going through life, just wearing you down. It could be one tragic event, one tragic thing that just is, it knocked you down and now you have all sorts of other baggage because of that one thing. Life can be that way where it can give you a punch to the gut that you are not expecting and it just gets you down and you are down for a while. You feel like you are down for the count. We have people in our church who have dealt with depression in their past simply rooted out of one tragic event in their life. One tragic event. And we have other people who have experienced an ongoing thing where it's just been something they're battling through. And uh, I, I, was, I saw a video online this week of, a, it, was a, it wasn't a boxing match, I think it was like an, a mixed martial arts fight or whatever, and I was, I was thinking this actually fits with life, because sometimes life is like getting in a ring with a, with a mixed martial artist, and this one video I saw, the one fighter was very cocky and arrogant, and he was kind of going in for a few jabs, and then he'd back up and kind of do the, the trash talking to the guy and do a few dance moves, and, and then he'd do like the Muhammad Ali like this, and, and the other guy's just waiting, and it went on for about 30 seconds, maybe you've seen this video, and then just in the moment where the one guy was doing another dance move, his opponent goes up, kicks him in the face, and he is down for the count, and of course in that moment you kind of feel like you had it coming, right? <laughs> you had to see that one coming. It makes for a good video. Sometimes life is like that where it's one big punch, just one punch and you are down. Sometimes it's like being in a ring for 12 rounds and it's just the wear and tear of the little jabs over and over and you start to feel like they are taking their toll on you. Today we're going to look at a story in the Bible of a young lady who is experiencing this ongoing heartache, and it was taking its toll. A look at how, even though life can be, at times, feel like we're in a boxing match, um, even though it feels that way at times, that there is still reason to look ahead with hope and optimism, and certainly with Thanksgiving on this Thanksgiving weekend. So this story is found in 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be there uh, throughout the sermon this morning. I'm going to read a, a pretty good chunk of 1 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, if you want to turn there, there's some black hardcover Bibles probably in the inside row of your pew there. If you want to follow along, that'll be the same translation. The words will be up on the screen. Um, as always, I just want to encourage you, you can bring your Bibles to church. I'd love to have you follow along in a Bible that then you will have at home. I would love it to be something that your Bible is something you read throughout the week. And if you don't know what to read, you can reread the stories that we talked about in church and maybe write down a few notes in there to help you study throughout the week. You're allowed to write in your Bible. It's okay. It's not going to, there won't be lightning from heaven or anything like that. Um, but First Samuel, it's kind of in the beginning of the New Testament, probably about the eighth book in or something like that. First Samuel, chapter one, right at the very beginning, and we're going to start with verse one. And I'm going to read verse one and two. These will be up on the screen. There was a certain man, now there's a lot of Bible names coming up here, so bear with me. There was a certain man from Ramathim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, 
the son of Zuf. That's a great name. An Ephraimite. Elkanah had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. So right there, you've set the tone for this whole story. Now, a lot of the names... Um, we did a series a few weeks ago called The Skeptic and the Believer, and one of the things I mentioned was when we're looking at the historical accuracy of the Scripture, maybe you've heard people, well, I want nothing to do with faith because I don't believe the Bible's historically accurate. Well, anytime you read a run-on of names and locations like that, that's really essentially the writers at the time saying, okay, here's all the names. These are verifiable names. This is ways for you to verify that this is historically accurate because these were real people. And the other detail that you need to know, the big plot of the story, is Elkanah had two wives. Penina had children, and Hannah had no children. Now, this is the conflict. This was an important thing. Now, it's an important thing in our day and age today. But in this culture, in this time in history, providing an heir, having children, was huge. It was so vital. It was a way to pass on the family wealth. It was, the biggest thing was, it was a way of providing security for you as you went, as you got older. No social security there. You needed kids to take care of you when you got older. So you needed to provide an heir for your family wealth. You needed to have kids who would provide for you. And also, religiously speaking, God had said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to provide offspring for you. And so it was a sign of blessing from God to have kids. So if you were Hannah, and you were unable to have kids, this was not only were you feeling you're letting your husband down, you're not providing security for your family, but also there would be this underlying sense that God isn't with me. God's not blessing me. There's something I'm doing that is making God angry at me, and that's why I'm not able to have kids. This was what was going on with Hannah. Now, uh, one other thing real quick. When you read that, and this is one topic why people say, well, I don't, I don't believe the Bible because it talks about things that we don't think are okay today. This guy had two wives. This was a culture of polygamy. This was common. Now, God introduces his idea of marriage between, between husband and wife as one man, one woman into this culture that was very polygamist, polyga-ish, polygamy-ridden. Um, they liked to have multiple wives. And one of the reasons was for this idea because if you married Hannah and you read on in the story, Elkanah had Hannah whom he loved, but Penina was able to provide him with children. This was very common. The story of Abraham and Sarah, if you know the story in the Old Testament, a child was promised to Abraham and Sarah, although they were very old. Um, and so they thought, well, there's no way we're going to be able to have kids. So they took matters into their own hands. They hatched up another plan. Hatched is probably an, an accurate word for this analogy where Sarah's servant Hagar, Sarah said, Abraham, go have a kid with Hagar so that we can at least provide an heir for us, that we can at least have some offspring. Now, what God is saying through all of these instances is, in the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, so often people, where they weren't able to have kids, they would try it rather than wait for God, to provide. Rather than wait for God to bring the promise, they would take matters into their own hands. They would find someone else. And so this was often an issue of, not an issue, this was often a reason why people would marry multiple wives. And I think there's one lesson in there before we go on any further, is that God would say, if you're, if you're here today and you're thinking, I know God has promised this. I know God has said this is going to happen. 
And there's always the tendency to think, well, we gotta, we got to figure this out on our own. we got to come up with our own solution. God is always saying, don't Hagar this situation. Don't Hagar this. Don't rush ahead. I am providing in my own timing. Anyways, this is the background of this story. We're going to continue on. Now, I'm going to read the rest of this story. It's going to be a few verses, okay? So if you have an intention deficit disorder, this is where it's really going to kick in because I'm going to read about 14 verses, but they'll be up on the screen. This is the rest of the story, starting in verse 3. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. This is where a temple would be, a place of worship where they would go offer sacrifices where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival, Penina, the other wife, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year, Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? And here's the total husband thing to say right here. Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? In an instance of a husband not really getting it. Verse 9. Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. And her, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli, who's the priest, observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. That's a good priest right there, right? (laughs) I was laughing at that. Like, someone's praying, and you just see their mouth moving, but you can't hear their voice. She's got to be drunk, is what he said. How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. No, my Lord, Hannah replied, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli answered, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. So that's the story. Year after year, Hannah Elkanah and Penina and all of Penina's kids, they go to the temple to make a sacrifice. And year after year for Hannah, this is a reminder of the heartache. This is a reminder. It's like going through a holiday season when you've lost a loved one. It's a reminder of what is not there, of what you wish was there. This happened every year. Not that Hannah needed a reminder that she didn't have children, but this was a reminder. Year after year, reduced to tears, she couldn't eat. And there's just something about that as I've talked about life. The year after year is something that jumped out of me when I was reading this story. There's just something about ongoing struggle. And maybe anxiety or depression is something that you have dealt with for a long time, and it's been a long season. And the year after year part of it is really what is weighing on you. And you can relate to Hannah, certainly, in this story. 
Also, what jumped out at me is verse 15, where Hannah, who, you know, the, the priest, the, the priest of the year says, I think you're drunk because I see your mouth moving, um, where he says, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And Hannah, what's her reply? No, I'm not that. Don't, I'm not, I haven't been drinking. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. In verse 15, it says that, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I did a little word search, a little word study on that. Other translations of this same, same story would say, Hannah said, I'm a woman who is oppressed in spirit. And I looked at the word. Now, if you're new to church, um, you need to know this, that the Old Testament was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew. Okay, so sometimes there is a Hebrew word that was used in the original writing that they don't really know how to translate, or some of the meaning is lost in translation. So I did a little study on the Hebrew word that was where they translated it to deeply troubled or oppressed in spirit. And that Hebrew word is pronounced kasha, kasha. And it is used several times in the Old Testament. It is used when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt and the Egyptians had really hard labor that they put on them, slave labor. The, the word that was used to describe that was kasha. There were times when there was harsh words spoken by Joseph to his brothers in the Old Testament. And the word that was used to describe what Joseph says was kasha. Now, it was interesting, the definition of this word was really, it has several different ways to use it, but the meaning is this. It's just something that is hard. It's just something that's hard. And I thought that speaks so well to this message today. It's just going through something that is hard. It's just hard. Hannah is saying to the priest, I am a woman who's just been going through difficult things for a long time. I have kasha is the word she used. I am oppressed in spirit. I am deeply troubled because life has been hard. Life has worn me down. Life's worn me down. So in this story, a couple practical things. First of all, it's okay. If you are in this mode of life just being difficult, it's okay to feel disappointed. It's okay to go through times where you're like, man, this has been hard. It's okay to acknowledge that, especially in this church environment. I love our homestead church family. I want us to be a family. I want us to be a community. And one of the practical ways that's going to walk itself out, whether you're a student in the youth group, a kid in kids' church, or the old people in, the, in this room right here, um, one of the ways it's going to walk itself out is we provide a place for people to come in and say, you know what? It's been hard. It's been hard. Maybe we can just start saying, I, I've got kasha. I've got hard life. Life has been difficult. I think the worst thing that we can be as a church is one where we put on the spiritual face every Sunday and say, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Praise the Lord. Awesome. So great to be. And just put on, because we think we have to have that smiley face in order to be at church. I want this church to be a place where we can be real and just be like, man, it has been hard. It's been hard. I want all of us to be a family that we rally around people and say, yeah, me too. Let's, let's support each other. Let's lift each other up. Amen. Let's lift each other up as the house of God, as a church, as a family of God. Let's not be churchy, just, oh, everything's perfect, love it, and just try to hide the hard things that we are dealing with. Amen. Thank you. I got one on board. Another thing I noticed about this, and I, I made a joke about Elkanah, the husband. Um, Christy was, we were talking about this story, and when, when Elkanah says, why are you so sad, Hannah? Why are you so down? You've got me. Aren't I better than ten sons? 
you know, and Christy described that just this morning as such a dude thing to say. That was Christy's, Christy's phrase, and it's accurate. It's just very, it's, you know, I'm sure Elkanah meant well, and husbands, you can relate. I meant well, but I said something that was wrong. Um, this is that moment. There's going to be times where other people don't recognize, or they say things that try to help. And if you've ever gone through something difficult, you've experienced people who mean well, but they say something that doesn't help. So I want us to remember there's going to be times where people mean well and they just don't say things the right way. You know, just think of all the other things in your life that aren't falling apart. Well, that, you know, is true, but that's not really what you want to hear when you're going through kashah, when you're going through something that is difficult. And here's one other thing that I want to point out from this story of Hannah before we go on, is that notice what Hannah did. Every year, I'm sure she knew the journey to the temple to offer a sacrifice and praise to God. Every year, I'm sure she knew it was coming. Every year, I'm sure everything in her said, I am not going. I am not going. I do not need another reminder. I do not need another moment where other wife Panina is going to get all the extra meat from the sacrifice for all her kids And then she's going to rub it in my face and gloat and taunt me and make me feel worse. I don't need it. I'm not going. I'm not going. And what did Hannah do? Every year, I'm sure out of just an act of will and of a sacrifice, she said, no, I'm still going to go offer a sacrifice of thanks and praise to God. I'm still going to do it. It is going to not be fun. But God still is worthy of my sacrifice and my offering of praise. She kept going to the temple every year for this sacrifice, year after year. And I'm sure that in and of itself, her just going there, knowing what was about to happen, was a sacrifice in and of itself of just saying, God, you are worth it. This is a key thing for us, to continue to offer an offering, a sacrifice of praise and thanks to our God, even when life is hard. I want to encourage you just, you know, this weekend of thanksgiving, maybe it was an act of sacrifice for you to think of, well, I'm thankful for this and thankful for this because life has been hard and it was difficult for you to to think of things that you were thankful for. But I want to encourage you to keep moving forward in your faith. This is an offering of praise to our God to see the blessings that God has provided even in the midst of life that is difficult, to keep moving forward. God is going to use these difficulties He promises it. Your faith, your perseverance, your endurance, those things are getting stronger. It's very similar to an actual physical workout when you feel like you are worn down. That is your body breaking down and it's going to come back stronger. That's the whole point of exercise. It's the same thing with your faith. If you keep moving forward, if you keep saying, God, I'm going to keep honoring you, I'm going to keep moving forward, even when life is kasha, even when life is hard, That's when your faith increases. That's when God uses that to increase your endurance. And I just practically speaking, don't, if you're going through something difficult, don't isolate yourself. I would hate it if you ever thought, oh, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to go to church today. I got to see all those people and they're all happy. They've got life all figured out. I'm the only one struggling. No, I want you to come to church and recognize we are in this life. We are in this together. We all battle through things together. We can lift each other up. Don't isolate yourself. Continue to be a part of a church family. I want you to continue, even in the worst of days, to continue to be a part of this church community where we can find fellowship with one another, where we can lift each other up, where we can, together as people who are weary at times, offer thanksgiving and praise to God. 
Well, the story continues, and I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. The story continues after Eli hears Hannah's prayer, after he realizes she wasn't drunk. Um, after he hears her heart, he says to her, well, may it be granted to you. The priest says, you are someone who is grieving in your heart. May God grant you what you want. And soon after that, God answers Hannah's prayer, and Hannah has a son. And they name the son Samuel. And the name Samuel comes from, the meaning of it is because I have asked him from the Lord. I have asked of him of the Lord, and the Lord has provided Samuel. And she dedicated him to the Lord. And actually, she made good on her word, her vow to God to say, I'll dedicate him. He will serve you his whole life. Samuel, for his entire life, ever since he was three or four years old, served in the temple under Eli the priest. He became the priest uh, several years later. She dedicated to him to the Lord. This is a reminder that our kids, on their worst day, (laughs) right, and we've had some of those days, maybe you were... Five days at home for Thanksgiving break, you're like, "Uh, let's get these kids back to school, right? They're getting on my nerves. It's a reminder that kids are from God, and we are to dedicate them to him. We want God's best for our kids. So chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, story continues, and it goes on with Hannah's song of praise, and I'm just going to read the first two verses. This, in my Bible, it says Hannah's prayer. This is Hannah's song of praise. And I just have a couple thoughts on this before we wrap up this morning. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says this. Then Hannah prayed, and she said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies. Probably Panina she was thinking of there. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. I'm going to stop there. This is Hannah's offering of praise. And I don't think this was an offering of praise like, now that you've done what I want, now I think you're good. And we can fall into that trap, right? God, if you'll give me what I'm asking for, then I'll think you're good. This offering of praise was, even in the midst of it, I knew you were good. Even in the midst of difficult life, I knew you were good, and now you have shown it to me again. And that language she used there, there is no one like our God, there is no rock like our God. I read a scripture verse last week when we were talking about the fact that we can live our life on a firm foundation. Throughout scripture, scripture writers talk about our life of faith in God as being built on the rock. This is what Hannah says, there is no rock like our God. Last week it was Psalm 40. He set my feet, he lifted me out of the pit, and he set my feet on the rock, a firm foundation, a place of refuge and safety. So in the midst of hard life, if you are in the midst of it today, in the midst of a battle with mental illness, depression, and anxiety, we must always know that we can run to our God who is a firm foundation, a rock that we can build our lives on. There was another couple verses that I was reading, another time where, in a pretty well-known passage in Psalms, where the writer, where King David is writing, and he says, from the ends of the earth, actually, I'll just read it to you, Psalm 61, verse 1 and 2, it'll be up on the screen. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth, I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. When I'm going through hard life, Lord, 
It's not even that David was saying, solve all my problems. First and foremost, the psalmist David there was writing, when my heart is overwhelmed, when I'm going through difficult things, when life has been hard, lead me to you. Bring me to you because I know that's enough. Bring me to you because I know that you are the rock. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that I can find security and safety. And the other phrase I was thinking of that verse in Psalms, from the ends of the earth, and this is what I want to talk about as we close today, from the ends of the earth will I cry out to you. I've read this verse in Psalm 61 a number of times. And every time I read from the ends of the earth, I always thought of it as, well, um, from all over the world, people are praising you kind of thing. Like wherever I go, you know, I'm still going to, I'm still going to praise you. But that language is interesting. At this time, as we've read, the temple in this day and age for these uh, Israelites, the temple was the place where God's presence was. And so after several years, the temple became in Jerusalem. So people, years and years later, they would make that yearly pilgrimage to Jerusalem because in Jerusalem was the temple, and in the temple was where the presence of God was. This was, like, it was a geographical thing. It, oh, if you want to be experience the presence of God, you got to go there. You got to go to Jerusalem. You got to go to the temple. And in the middle of the temple where only the priest was allowed to go was said to be the very presence of God. This is why people came to Jerusalem to be close to God. God had a geographical location. If you put it in your smartphone, it would point right there. Temple, Jerusalem, this is where God is, okay? This is why people made the journey. So the language in that psalm where David says, from the ends of the earth will I cry out to you means something very different then than it does today. From the ends of the earth means even when I'm far away from Jerusalem, even when I'm farthest away from the presence of God. The presence of God is here, and I feel like I'm at the ends of the earth, as far from Jerusalem and the temple as can be, as far from the presence of God as I can feel. That's where I feel like I am. And maybe you are here today, and you're like, man, that is me. I'm here in a church, but I feel like I'm at the ends of the earth, away from the presence of God. And I love that phrase, from the ends of the earth, I will still cry out to you. And when my heart is overwhelmed, when I am troubled, when life is kasha, when life is hard, no matter how far I feel from you, God, I will still call out to you and you will still lead me to the rock. You lead me to the rock. So I am praying today for each of you. This Thanksgiving weekend, those of you who are struggling, those of you who are weary, those of you who are battling through anxiety or depression, or it's just been a hard year, it's just been a hard year, and you are weary, and you are worn down, and you feel like if God's presence is here, I feel like I'm at the ends of the earth. I'm praying for each of you today that, first of all, that God would hear your prayers, that God would answer prayers, that God would meet your needs. But even more than that, that he would once again pick you up, place your feet on the firm foundation that, it is, that is his love so that you can stand and know that you are with God that your life is in safety and security. So in a minute, we're going to have a time of prayer. And I just wanted to close with this one other thought. I know I've said that probably three times now, and you're going to stop believing me that I say I'm about to close. Um, this one closing thought. The Old Testament, as I said, the temple was where God's presence was. And when Jesus came, and Jesus died, and Jesus rose, the veil in the temple was torn. The earth shook 
The very foundations of that temple shook. And then what did Jesus say? I'm bringing you the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit is going to come. And where did he say the Holy Spirit would come and dwell? Did he say the Holy Spirit's going to come and it's going to be in Jerusalem, in the temple? No. What does the New Testament say about us? Is that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So in light of Hannah and Elkina having to go to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice in the temple because that's where the presence of God was. Today, we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. We have the presence of God in us. That should bring assurance to us, not only because we now realize we can never go far from His presence because His presence is in us. When you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit in you. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. It says this, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in your midst. God's Spirit is in you. You're never far from Him. But in addition to that, think about the hurting people in our world who would think, I need to go, I need the presence of God. There is not a hurt in the world that isn't made better by the presence of God, right? There's not a struggle that people are going through that wouldn't be made better by the presence of God coming near to them. And how does that happen? They don't go to the temple anymore. It's not a matter of coming into this building. It's a matter of us, the followers of Jesus, the people with the Holy Spirit in us, going to them. We're like little mobile temples, taking the Spirit of God with us to the hurting people in our world, those people for whom life is just hard. For those who are weary and oppressed in spirit, maybe that's you today, and maybe that's people you know in your workplace, in your neighborhood, at your school. People who you're going to see, you just saw Thanksgiving, you're going to see again at Christmas time. And you can think of it now as, I'm bringing the presence of God with me. The answer to all of their hurt is dwelling in me, and I can bring that. I can be a kind word. I can share about the love of Jesus. The presence of God can mend a hurt and can heal what is broken. So let's be reminded that we are the temples of the Holy Spirit, that we're never far from God, and that our kindness and our acts of love and just reaching out a hand to those who are hurting can bring such healing because we bring the Spirit of God with us. Amen? Amen.